You know, um, I, I want to continue in the vein of the apostolic church and the need for it and why I think that it's arising. And let me just say this, um, just sort of as a, as a segue. I don't know about you, but for four years or more, I've been hearing that elections have consequences. I've been hearing that phrase quite often. And now, you know, we're in a, a season where, you know, like the whole world is waiting to see, do we have an election? Who's been elected? And what the outcome of it will be. But but it's because, you know, that that elections have consequences. And, and the reason is there's a shifting of power uh, from one party to another, back and forth, as the election season and cycles come and go. I don't know how many uh, presidential seasons I could figure that out, but it's more, it's a lot. How many? Ten? Ten or more. Yeah. So, you know, um, if, if, and I do believe it, elections has consequences, then there's a, a parallel in our world, in the church realm, not that that doesn't affect us, it does affect us, but I, I just want to take that and actually use that as a uh, springboard, a, a segue, and say that resurrections have consequences. Resurrections have consequences. For example, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, do you know that the, the group of people that gathered to see Lazarus, it, it was the biggest crowds that Jesus had ever experienced, was them coming to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus who had been resurrected. And if you read the story closely in the Gospels, you find out that the religious leaders and the political spirit that was influencing them uh, made them calculate that so many people were coming to Christ because of the resurrection of Lazarus that they would they would have to figure a way to kill him again. But I don't know if you think that through. I mean, like, if you kill him, couldn't Jesus just raise him up again? I mean, you know, resurrections really have consequences. Jesus' own resurrection has a huge, huge consequence for those who believe. And I want to go into that in just a moment. But I want to do this for you. When you think about the consequence of a resurrection, the same thing happens as with an election. In many ways, what happens is there's a transfer of power. So the power that rested on Jesus, which was literally the Holy Spirit, that same power was that now being transferred to the early church. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, I just want to flat put these uh, scriptures on the, the screen for you so that you can just follow along with me on this. But I want you to see the transfer of power and its influence in um, Acts chapter 1, verse number 7. It is not for you to know, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and by the way, he had certified his resurrection with 40 days or more of proof, undeniable proof that Jesus Christ was resurrected. He didn't just resurrect and then go back to heaven. For 40 days, he ate, he drank, he talked, he slept with, he was with his disciples, which would become the beginning of this early church. 
So he certified his resurrection by 40 days of infallible proof. And now we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, uh, the disciples ask him, will God restore the kingdom at this time? And Jesus responds, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let me just interrupt and say that Jesus gave his disciples a way to see signs that could be read that might indicate the coming of the day of the Lord was at hand. You can read all about that in Acts, I'm sorry, in Matthew 24. But uh, as he's talking to his disciples, he's saying, like, it's not for you to really understand because these things don't come, they, they're not ebb and flowing by elections, pandemics, rioting in the street, earthquakes, hurricanes. They're not, it, 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 these days are fixed, which is what the scripture says. Um, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive. Let me just stop for a second. He's saying it's not for you to figure out exactly when the day of the Lord is coming. That's not for you to know yet. But this is something you do need to know. This is something you do need to know. But you will receive power. It's dunamis. It's the explosive supernatural kind of power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and with that power you shall be my witnesses, literally martyrs is the Greek word, my martyrs, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And additionally, in John chapter 17, the words that I read to you a while ago, and I'm going to just read them again. Uh, John 17, verses 13 through 18. But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I really wish that Jesus would amend his prayer because his prayer was answered, is being answered, is yet today being answered. But apparently Jesus not in some cruel twist of fate, but by design. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And by the way, just so you notice, I mean, like really accurate translation would be, but to keep them from evil. Uh, the, the rest of the words are supplied by the translator. They're not of this world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Just two more verses. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That would be us. One generation to another generation to another generation. And here we sit today, enjoying the effects of the prayer that Jesus prayed 
shortly before he was crucified. And then verse 27, I'm sorry, 21, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. If you look at his logic there, a united church creates an environment for an unbelieving world to believe the gospel. So um, there's that. But I want you to notice that Jesus said, as he was not of the world, neither were they of the world, and yet here we are in the middle of the world. What he's saying is that their, their origin, our origin now, is not just from an Adamic race, but our origin starts with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he said, I, because I live, you will live also, he's talking about not only raising us up at the end of the age, but raising us up from being merely humans. We're not merely humans. We're much more than that. We are so human, but there is something so powerful and so divine that dwells within the heart of the believer. So some people have coined this phrase. It says that we're in the world, but not of the world. Which always disturbs me because it's, it almost sounds like, why don't we just sort of circle the wagons and keep the world from influencing us? I don't know if you notice this, but when anytime you barricade yourself in from an enemy, um, you're a prisoner. <laughs> So if we're in the world but not of the world, I think a better way of saying this, uh, it, it, it's not really changing his words, it's just turning the emphasis around. It, it would be better for us to say that now, because we are not of this world, that the Lord Jesus Christ is sending us into this world with the message. It's the message of the love story, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We carry a message which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. My Romans class will remember that when we went through Romans 1, 17, we said, you know, that, that what, what Paul was being challenged with is that all throughout Asia Minor as he was preaching in synagogue after synagogue and marketplace after marketplace and even as he was drawn into Athens like the very center of the uh, cultic world, you know, uh, that uh, the gospel was invading the darkness. The light was invading the darkness. And uh, someone had written to him and said, you will not bring that gospel to Rome because it was the epicenter of the Roman army, the epicenter of all of uh, Pax Romana, you know, the, the power, the peace of Rome, the, the conquering citadel was established in Rome and so that every place they had conquered they sent before them those who would take the culture of that world into all these different pagan and uh, Jewish worlds and uh, the idea was so that when the Roman emperor got on his Roman road and he rode to any of these cities that when he came into their cities he could taste smell and feel the culture of that city. So Rome at that time was the center 
of the political universe. It was like the Washington, D.C., the New York City of the day. And there were people who said, do not bring your gospel to Rome, Paul, because it won't work here. And Paul answers in response and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Paul the apostle had experienced an encounter with Jesus Christ. And in that encounter, there was a transfer of the power of God to the apostle Paul. Like like had been transferred to all the other members of the early church. And so Paul carried this message. And I, I just want to remind you that it's the power of God unto salvation, even if you don't believe it. Even if you don't believe it, it is the power of God. If you are looking, as I am looking for something that is demonstrable, something that will capture the heart of the atheist and the agnostic and the unbeliever and the outright pagan of our culture today, with the love of Jesus Christ, lead with the gospel. Because when you lead with the gospel, it carries within it a spirit. And all of a sudden, what can happen is that, well, let me just tell you that whenever you share the gospel, there is never a time when nothing happens. It may look like nothing has happened to you on the outside. But I want to remind you that, that sharing the gospel is like planting seed. And the Hebrew way that we've been reminded of was that when they, when they would seed their fields, they would broadcast it, they would spread it on top of the soil. We till up our soil first, then sow the seed, then cover it over. But what they actually did was broadcast it everywhere, and then they would take a plow, and they would plow the seed under. So when you share the seed, then all of a sudden there's a plowman. He's the Holy Spirit. The plowman has an invitation to come. I've said before, and I believe this with all my heart, that many times the Holy Spirit is ready to change a person's heart. And you're looking at them and with your senses, just like John said at the beginning of the service, you, you look at them and you say, there is no way in this world they want to hear what I have to say. There is no way that they're receptive to the Lord Jesus Christ and his good news. But I would urge you to plant the seed because once you've planted the seed, it is just begging for the plowman to come along. And the plowman is the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes all you have to do is say, Mary had a little lamb, and that's enough for the Holy Spirit to work. You know, I just think that we should be able to just say, okay, I only have like a split second. Let me just tell you the gospel in a nutshell. Mary had a little lamb. He takes away the sin of the world. Receive him. By the way, that John, I just want to say that when your mother had uh, encouraged you to stare at the statue of Mary, I, I, I have to attest that, you know, the first thing I saw when I woke up and was living was Mary. My mother. She's a saint. One of the holy ones of God. I think that if we share indiscriminately, if we just, well, uh, there's a time for wisdom and logic, but I think that if we were less, like, 
a lot of people are asking people to be uh, people of courage and bold and, and you know, and um, sometimes I don't know the difference between bold and courage and, you know, arrogant. But, you know, if you know that fine line, you just have the courage to say, listen, sir, excuse me. Um, this may mean nothing to you, but I just feel like that the Lord wanted me to tell you the essence of the gospel. And that is that God loves the world so much that he gave his son. His one and only son, that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life and not perish. Maybe that's all you have to share. But that, I'm going to just remind you that seeds have life in them. The saying is that inside of an acorn is an oak tree. It's really true. If you split a seed open, that inside of that seed is a life in miniature. God has created the world so that everything begets life through some form of seed. That's why it would be important for us to remember that after Noah's flood, that the promise, the faithfulness of God caused God to say, that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest would come and there would not be another worldwide flood, which I think would be important the next time Adam, I'm sorry, Noah and his family saw rain. You know, it's like, oh no, here we go again. Should we run for the boat, you know? Um, put the rainbow in the sky. The rainbow literally symbolizes the promise of God that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. Which means that there was a world that needed judgment, but there was a world that needed saved. But while the earth remains, seed time and harvest would come. If you want a harvest, you have to plant a seed. Many of us are praying for a harvest and we've not sown seed. You talk about miracles. That would be a miracle. Even, Even in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, there was the seed of the woman. 23 chromosomes. And the seed of the Spirit of God that came together in the womb of Mary and formed Jesus Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. The Holy Spirit created everything. But he doesn't, you know, God has fixed a, a law that, that from this point on, from the point of the creation onward, he doesn't create something out of nothing anymore. It, there's always something that is sown first whether we're talking financially, whether we're talking about souls, whether we're talking about investing in your, your uh, career and your occupation, or you're investing in a marriage, you're investing. There's always this, you have to start with something. That's why God 
most commonly asked of the servants that he have used in the scriptures. One of the most common things he asks is, what's in your hand? It doesn't take much, but whatever is in your hand, he can use it. I just think that the church has lived in the world, but not of the world. And it's time for us to recognize, because we're not of the world, we have to get into the world with this message of Jesus Christ and, and take the risk of planting seed. Take the risk. Sow a seed of love. You may reap love. You might not reap love. Oh, I was going to tell you that there is nothing that, there's never a time that when you share the gospel that nothing happens. Because if you share the gospel and the spirit of God convicts the person and they respond to the gospel, then a soul will have been one to the Lord. If they say, no, thank you. When they say no thank you, they're still left with the seed that was planted in them that God could shine on or rain on or, you know, water or nurture at some other point in time in their life. Brothers and sisters, some of the harvest that I have seen in these latter days of my life has been seeds that we have planted in the earlier days of our life. It's an amazing thing. But God is faithful. I shouldn't be surprised. I'm just going to ask you to consider with me this thing of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And God has transferred that power. I want to, for the next few moments, take you to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to show you how this thing works. This is an important uh, 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 scripture for us to, to look at today. We're going to look at Ephesians 1. And verses number 18 through 23, this is under the title, uh, Resurrections, of course, Have Consequences. I want to look at that resurrection for just a moment and the transfer of power. Paul is praying for a church that he had planted, literally, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to them to encourage them. And then in verse number 18... He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of of his power towards us who believes. Let me just translate that. The hope of your calling, that has to do with your identity. The inheritance of the saints. Actually, God is looking for an ROI, a return on the investment, the seed that has been planted in you that has now flourished and grown into an eternal life. That investment, he's looking for a return on that. So he's looking, not only has he given the church an inheritance, he's looking for an inheritance from the church. And I know the church is beaten up. I know she is battered. I know that there's areas and pockets that need the light of God to shine into it and expose corruption. But the church of Jesus Christ is still the bride, the girlfriend of Jesus Christ. She, she is his planting. She is his wife-to-be. She is his fiance. She is his work. And, and even when I criticize her, it's only because I love her. So don't beat up on 
Jesus' bride. So there's a hope of his calling. That's your identity in Christ. There's an inheritance in your saint, in the saints. That's our purpose. That's our reason for being, to bring a harvest. And then there's this power that has been uh, given to us through Jesus Christ. That power is our authority. That power is our authority. Yes, there's an authority in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit work together in tandem. But I want you to notice that the book of Acts begins by saying, O Theophilus, which is translated lover of God. O lover of God, I wrote to you before about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Jesus did things, and out of the doing, he was able to teach. And uh, that, that cart needs to get in front of the horse again, I believe. But anyways, in Ephesians 1, verse 19, the suppressing greatness of the power towards us who believe. What kind of power is this? These, this power, is in accordance with working of the strength of his might. Well, how strong is God? How mighty is God? Well, let's just say, do we need to talk about the creation? That's one place. Do we need to talk about the creation? Do we need to talk about how he created life? No, actually, Paul used this phrase and this thought, the greatest demonstration of the power of God wasn't the creation of the universe as big as that is, and we have no idea how big that is. It wasn't even breathing and creating life as wonderful and as amazing as that is. The greatest demonstration of the power of God is defeating death through the Lord Jesus Christ. Defeating death, that's something no tyrant, so no emperor, no army, no conquering force, no one can defeat death. Everyone is only given one life. Cats might have, I don't know, a couple of other lives. But I'm just going to say that humans have one life. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, there's a judgment. So we are given one life. And the problem is, is that at the end of that life, no matter what you achieved or what you didn't achieve, how high you rose or how low you went, how despicable you were, how despiteful you were, how honorable or how lovely or how wonderful you were. At the end of your life, you cannot cheat death. There is no one who can live one day beyond death. Except that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So let me read the verse again, verse number 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, 
and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. Let me say it this way, not only in 2020, but in 2021, 2025, or however many years God gives us, let me just say that there is not going to be an age in which Jesus Christ is demoted. He will only be exalted. He will only be glorified. The mouth of the agnostic will be stopped. The mouth of the atheist will be stopped. The shaking fist of the one who denies God will cease and will fall and die. But Jesus Christ will still be Lord. That power is the greatest power of all. So let's just say for a moment you look at Jesus, as many people in the world does, as a good teacher. He was a good teacher, the best. Well, some people think he was a good philosopher. He was a good philosopher, the best. He was a good storyteller. He was the best. He was compassionate. He was the most humane person. He lived an extraordinary life in such a short period of time. I am so impressed with the extraordinary life of Jesus. And if he just came and died, he would still be a life worth emulating. He would still be a life that would be worth watching and, and pattering your life after. But the story doesn't end there. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. Jesus says, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to raise it up. I don't know how you determine, well, I've been dead long enough. It's time to raise up. I don't know how you do that, but this is how I imagine it. Jesus was crucified. They came to break his legs they didn't need to. He was already dead. But just in case he wasn't dead enough, they speared his side. Water and blood comes out. Any physicians or nurses among us will tell you that's not a good picture. When water and blood flows out, the centurion who had killed who knows how many people by crucifixion he was convinced that Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea comes and requests the body of Jesus. After a few hours, permission is granted. They hastily wrap him and take him to a tomb. This is a wealthy man's tomb. There is no insult ever greater than having someone rob your grave when you're dead. So there's no back doors. There's no secret trap doors. This is hewn out of limestone. This is carved out. I've been in what they say was the very grave of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, it, it sure felt like it to me. It sure looked like it to me. I have no idea. But I'm going to tell you something. There was only one way in that tomb. As a matter of fact, uh, crusaders in an earlier time could not get in there properly. So they tore open a door big enough and wide enough for them to get in and to get through there. 
and uh, they examined everything and venerated the place and who knows, but they altered it. And now today you can actually stoop over and walk in to the grave in this garden tomb. If it wasn't that grave, it was like that one. There is only one way in. There is a dead Savior laying on a slab. He may as well be laying in a mortuary. He might as well be down in the morgue. He was dead, D-E-D, dead. He was his dead. That's um, my uh, hillbilly roots coming out there. I'm sorry. Jesus forensically and actually was dead. They rolled a stone in front of it. The stone is not something you and I would go and roll away by ourselves. There's usually a, a trough built. So the stone comes down into the trough. So now you have to roll it against gravity. And then they sealed it. They sealed that tomb and they put soldiers in it. And I don't know exactly how you see it, but I can't see anything more depressing than to have my Savior in that tomb. I cannot, I mean, when you've lost a loved one, there's a grief and an anguish that is undescribable. But if that person is your only hope, the depression, the despair, the fear, kind of feels like a pandemic. I don't know. You know, it, they ran, the disciples ran from that tomb. They, they made themselves scarce. For anyone who thinks that the disciples came and overpowered those soldiers, I'm just going to ask you this question. Why would they be holed up in a room with the doors locked, you know? They were not particularly hopeful at that point that anything would change in this picture, even though Jesus clearly told them that he would rise from the dead. They had never seen outside of Lazarus in the one or two or three people that Jesus had raised from the dead. They just Figured like I would figure, well, you know, who's going to raise him? You know, certainly not Peter, not, not John, you know, not any of the disciples. I'm just, I just don't feel I have the faith to raise Jesus from the dead today. I'm sorry. What pressure that would be. So, John, you, he really loved you. Why don't you go raise Jesus from the dead? Peter, you're the, the rock, you know, God's going to build on this, and you, why don't you go raise him from the dead? They did not have the courage to raise Jesus from the dead. I'm going to tell you personally, on one occasion, there were those who wanted me to go and participate in raising someone from the dead. I did not have the faith for it. I did not have the faith for it, and I felt that it was a very bad idea. But under pressure, I contacted, you know, the, the funeral home, and I asked him, is this possible? And he's like, Rich, it's not possible. And he said, I'm going to just tell you something right now, that if you have any faith at all and you walk in and see 
this body, you will absolutely lose every little bit of faith you have. So I would just discourage you or anyone from doing that. And I know the end of this story. I'm the one with the promise that greater things than these Jesus will do. Now, in my lifetime, I do believe that I saw a young man raised from the dead. I prayed for him, but from a distance. I wasn't there when the Lord brought him back. But I thank God because I probably standing right there might not have had the faith for it. But God knew that, you know, this young man needed to come back to life, you know. So God just did it through one whispered prayer. I don't know if you can appreciate, if we can appreciate how dead and how hopeless this situation was. Disciples hold up in their homes for fear of the Romans. Jesus is dead. Stone is in front of it. Seal upon it. And soldiers guarding it. But on the third day, the father said, okay, it's been long enough. It's time to defeat death. It's been long enough. I want you to remember that the very first commandment that was given, that you can eat from any of these trees in the garden, but there is two trees. One, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't ever touch that tree. If you touch that tree in that day, you will die. They ate from that tree. Guess what? Death has been our problem ever since. But Jesus died for our death. Jesus died for Adam and Eve's death. Jesus died for us. But there is nothing in the holiness and righteousness and promise of God that requires that Jesus stay dead. So the Father says, it's long enough. It's been long enough. Holy Spirit, go wake up my son. The wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is that he can go where we can't go. He's a spirit after all. And the Holy Spirit went right past the guards. I can almost imagine the guards like, did you feel something? I don't know. Right past the guards right through the stone, right into Jesus, entered his body, began transforming that broken body, used up every cell, used up every blood vessel, used up every bone, and raised Jesus back to life. A, a heavenly body, it was different, but it was Jesus. He could eat with them. He could talk with them. They could touch him. But that dead Savior, that dead Savior in that tomb stood up. And the Holy Spirit looks at Jesus and said, you ready to blow this joint? And Jesus says, let's do this. Boom. Blow the stone off of its mounting place. Soldiers go scurrying and scattering everywhere, and Jesus walks out alive. 
But there is a great, great consequence from that resurrection because the scriptures are telling us here that when, you, we, when we read it, we see that the power that has been transferred to the church through Jesus Christ's death is the same power that brought him back from the dead. That spirit of God dwells within the body of Christ. And he says in verse number 23, oh, on verse number 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you please stand up with me? Because I am feeling like right now the Holy Spirit is really, really happy. He's very happy because we're talking about his work and his Lord and his, uh, the work that he did in the life and the body of Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember that that church is this church. That those people passed the same faith on to another generation. Who passed it on to another generation. Who passed it on to another generation. The seed of God. The seed of the gospel keeps on spreading. Keeps on growing. Keeps on bringing a harvest. In nation after nation. In time zone after time zone in place after place, in faraway places. We've had no, no uh, visitation of God, had no understanding of God. When the missionary or someone shares with them the gospel, they're saved and they're transformed and they become our brothers and sisters in Christ. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has got to resurrect an apostolic church with an apostolic faith that knows how to live, knows how to war, knows how to conquer, knows how to bring life back to this world. And we are not of this world. Our origin is from the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ. And now because we are not of this world, we are given into this world to go to the darkest, the saddest, 